You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Well, I invite you to return to John 16, and we are going to attempt to finish the chapter this morning. It's a I think we can do it. It's a lot of verses, but let's give it a let's give it a try. We're going to start with verse 16 right where we left off last time. John 16 verse 16. And I'm going to read through the end of the chapter, which will set us up to begin looking at the final part of this uh this long text, which is uh, what has been probably best I can see and search from the 16th century, has been called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. I believe that phrase is, was coined around the late 1500s. Um, so, verse 16, Jesus speaking to his disciples says, A little while, and you will see me no longer, and again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you'll weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Till now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, and indeed it is come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world." Heavenly Father, O Lord, how precious are these words, Father, words spoken by our Lord and Master. And, O Father, we pray that you be pleased to open your words to our hearts this morning. 
that, Father, as we seek to understand these words and apply them in our lives, Lord, with this prayer, we confess that, Lord, we cannot do these things by ourselves. We need your grace. We ask for your grace. And, oh, Father, we, we anticipate your grace. We anticipate you teaching us this morning. We know it's your good pleasure to teach your children. So teach us, O oh Lord, this morning that we may learn and that we may apply and that we may walk, O oh Father, in, in closer fidelity to the likeness of Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, I don't want this saying to get trite. This is the third time now I'll be using this as an introduction, but I think it's important that we continue to do this, is that Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure, right? And I keep bringing this up because it's easy to lose focus of this. There's a lot, of, there's a lot going on here in this upper room, isn't there? From chapter 13, 14, 15, here we are moving all the way through 16, uh, and this, you know, Jesus is giving all this instruction to his, uh, to his disciples. He's preparing them for arguably what will be one of the most traumatic hours that they're going to come to. That is his departure. That is his leaving. And um, in verse 16, now he, he, he has been mentioning that he's going to depart. He's mentioning that he's going to leave. But in verse 16, notice how he really turns it up. He makes it so clear. He says, a little while. And you will see me no longer, and again a little while, and you will see me. And one of the things I'm kind of amazed about, really, with the commentaries is there's so much ink spilled over trying to understand that sentence. And, you know, I, there's a lot of sentences in Scripture where I can see a lot of, a lot, the need for a lot of ink to be spilt and trying to figure them out. Some of these passages, you scratch your head and say, what in the world is he talking about? But it seems to me that this one is so abundantly clear. What is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about his crucifixion and his resurrection. That's pretty clear, isn't it? But... Um, there's been a lot of ink spilled about that, whether it's, his, whether it's his crucifixion or it's his resurrection or is it his ascension and, his, and, and the Holy Spirit's being poured down at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. We'll talk maybe about that here in a few minutes, but I think it's very clear what Jesus is speaking about here is his crucifixion and his resurrection. He says, a little while, you'll see me no more. Again, a little while, you will see me. Jesus is going to be arrested within uh, an hour or two from speaking these words. And that's going to start by, by, by the next day, Jesus will be hanging on the cross. And then he will be buried in the tomb and they will not see him. Uh, but then in a very short period of time, um, on Sunday morning, they, well, on sun, later on Sunday, they will see him as he begins to appear to them. Does that make sense? I think it's pretty clear. But if we were on the other side of the cross and we were with the disciples or we were among the disciples, imagine how cryptic this would be. You wouldn't be able to make any sense of this at all, would you? What's he talking about? There he's doing it again. He does this a lot. Um, and they're asking themselves, what is this? Verse 17, what is this that he says to us? A little while, you will see, you will not see me again. A little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father, verse 18, they were saying, What's he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. So they're kind of whispering to themselves and talking among themselves, but it appears that nobody really has the the impetus or the, or the courage, if you will, to just say, Jesus, what do you mean? What are you talking about? Nobody's asking. But here we see the graciousness and the pastoral care of our Lord. When you look at verse 19, Jesus knew they wanted to ask him. 
Man, he knows our hearts, doesn't he? And, you know, I, I think we can relate with these disciples more than we realize. How many times are you perplexed about something in life that you want to do or something that's going on in your life, but for whatever reason it is, you've been reluctant to go to the Lord in prayer? How many times has that happened? Why do we do that? There's no explanation. It's irrational if we... But we do sometimes, don't we? Um, but be of good cheer. Look, Jesus is the same today, yesterday, and forevermore. He hasn't changed, and this is what he is like. Look at what he is like. He knew they wanted to ask him. For whatever reason, whether it's a lack of courage or they're nervous or maybe they're afraid to hear the answer, they haven't asked him. So Jesus says, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while, and you'll not see me again. A little while, you will see me. Look how easy he makes it for them to ask the question. And then he begins to answer it in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. And again, it's obvious he's talking about his crucifixion, isn't it? You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. As much as I study these passages and try to get myself in the, in the position that the disciples were in, it's next to impossible for us on this side of the cross looking back. But could you imagine, you've spent three years with Jesus. He's been your everything for three years. You've all gathered around him. You've looked to him day in and day out. Whenever there was a problem, we didn't have nothing to worry about. Jesus fielded it. There Jesus was. He's always there. And now he's telling us he's going to depart. And imagine seeing him crucified on the cross. Imagine the, the psychology of it. Imagine the guilt feelings that you would have. Imagine what it was like on Saturday for the disciples. How could we abandon him? He never abandoned us. He always stood with us. He was always with us. He would have never forsaken us. And our cowards, we went running away. There should have been something we could have done. How could this have happened? We thought, we thought he was just going to bring in the kingdom like with an explosion and it was going to... Can you imagine that? They're sorrowful. They're lamenting. Jesus is... He's warning them. He's telling this is coming in verse 20. He says, you will weep and lament. The world will rejoice, but you will be sorrowful. But your sorrow will turn into joy. He's giving them something to hold on to, so when this happens, they might be able to make at least a little bit of sense out of it. Now, one of the, I have to think that verse 20 maybe is one of the most scathing indictments to the fallenness of humanity here. Because in the midst of all the, and again, you know, sometimes when you lose a loved one, you think that the whole world should be on its knees. And you drive up and down the road and you see the world's just going on like nothing ever happened. If anyone had that experience, and imagine the disciples. I mean, here Jesus has been crucified, and it's Saturday, and all the storefronts are open, and everybody's doing business, and nobody's acting like anything's ever happened. You follow me? Well, I think I remember Jesus saying that we were going to be sorrowful, but the world will rejoice. How can, we, how, how can our hearts be so hard that we would rejoice over the crucifixion of any human being? 
Has anybody ever thought about that? How hard our hearts can be that we could rejoice over the crucifixion of anyone. It was a terrible form of death. But to rejoice at the crucifixion of Jesus. But this is the indictment against unbelief, isn't it? And, and you know, one of the songs we, we sang this morning was, Lord, help my unbelief. You know, that unbelief that's in our hearts, that unbelief rejoices with the doing away of Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? Because what unbelief says, unbelief says this, my life would be happier if I could cast him away. I don't need him in my life to be happy. I don't need him to be at the center of my life to be happy. In fact, my life would be happier if he wasn't there. That's how we walk in unbelief, isn't it? I'm not pointing outside these walls right now. I'm pointing inside these walls. I'm not pointing at you. I'm pointing at me. We all have this problem, don't we? Sometimes our lives can be just so tracking with the Lord. We're just tracking with the Lord and everything's going great. Other times we can be hard as stone, can't we? And when we're hard as stone, what are we doing? We are saying in ourselves, whether we realize it or not, we're saying, I can be happy without you, Lord. In fact, I'm happier without you. This is an uncomfortable thought, isn't it? Verse 20 is such an indictment. But as we travel into our hearts, as we travel into the evil of our hearts, Let's be of good cheer here because Jesus, knowing all of this, still goes to the cross to take all of this away from us. You follow what I'm saying here? Is when we see our hearts at its worst, when we see our hearts at their worst, it's then that we begin to see Jesus at his best. We think we want to hide this from Jesus. Jesus, I don't want you to know this about myself. I don't want you to know this. I'm going to keep this over here. I don't want you to know this. But then we realize he does know this. He knows this about every one of us. It's true of every single one of us. Then when you discover his loving arms are still around you. Lord, really? Your loving arms are still around me when I'm like this? It changes everything, doesn't it? You mean I can be myself? Please be yourself. Warts and all. Notice what Jesus says here. He says in verse 21, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. Here he's using an illustration. I think it's easy enough for us to get the illustration. You know, he's talking about all the pain, the intense and incredible pain. And, and mind you, this is, in, this is long before epidural, you know. And I'm not going to go any further than that. Say, Rick, don't you act like you know anything about this. I don't. And I'm not going to act like I do. Uh, But the illustration is clear enough. Look at the intense pain. Jesus is talking about the intense pain 
that a woman feels as she's giving birth to her child, but then how quickly she can forget all of that when she's holding that child in her arms. And we could say, you know, um, perhaps Jesus had just watched a woman give birth and thought, that's a, great, that's a great sermon illustration. I think I'll use that one of these days. That's what preachers do. And there's nothing wrong with that. My antenna is always up for illustrations. Ask Tammy. I'm always thinking, looking at this, looking at that, looking at this. There's a good illustration. Or I'll say, that'll preach. That'll preach. And I store it up in my, uh, in my, my head. But that's not what Jesus is doing. That's why we read from Isaiah 26 this morning. And um, I invite you to turn back there again. I want to show you. Isaiah 26 is a passage I wouldn't expect anyone here this morning to be familiar with. And in fact, one of the reasons why I think we're not as familiar with it is because we read it and we think, what in the world are we to do with that? I, don't, I can't even begin to understand that. Isaiah 26 and... What I really have in mind here is verses 16 through uh, 19, especially. In Isaiah 26, verse 16, O Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. What's that mean? Okay, the people of God are being disciplined. They're being disciplined for walking uh, away from God, for turning their backs on God. And look at verse 17. And God's discipline is upon them for it. Okay? And you look at verse 17. Like a pregnant woman. Aha! Like a pregnant woman who rises and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth. So were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant. We writhed, but we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth. And the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Verse 19, your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. What's that about? The resurrection? You say the resurrection in the Old Testament? There it is, isn't it? That'll preach. The resurrection. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Now, this is very cryptic, but what is it saying? I think, the, I think the initial message is clear enough. Before the resurrection comes, there's going to be terrible suffering, likened to a woman giving birth to a child. And by the time of Jesus' ministry, scholars tell us, by the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, about 700 years later, there was um, a common understanding among scribes and among scholars that uh, before the Messiah comes and consummates his kingdom, there's going to be birth pains, and they would refer to it as the birth pains of the Messiah. And I would submit that that's what Jesus is making reference to here back in John 16, back to verse 21. He's talking about the birth pains of the Messiah. And just as Israel, the people of God, were being disciplined because they hadn't been fruitful, Here we see this again. Jesus, who is representing Israel, is now about to go into travail. He is about to go into the pains of childbirth. He is going to to experience this on the cross. See, I can't tell you any more than I've already said about a woman giving childbirth, but see, Jesus can. 
not because he ever gave birth to a child, but because he suffered worse than any human being has ever suffered in this life or ever will suffer in this life on the cross. But the suffering is necessary. The suffering is necessary. The suffering is going to have to happen before you get to the joy. But the joy is going to be so great that you're not going to think about the suffering any longer. Does that make sense? doesn't just get a hold of your heart. I mean, the Word of God, who would ever think it's boring? I mean, look, look at this amazing words we have here. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. You're going to experience joy. You're going to be sorrowful for a little while, but you're going to experience joy. So there's a sense where the, the, the disciples and the apostles are going to go through this too, aren't they? Their sorrow is going to be turned to joy when they see the resurrected Lord. And we could make application of that now. We go through times of sorrow, don't we, in this life? It's like a roller coaster ride, isn't it? Where we have these moments of intense joy and praise, and then the next thing you know, it seems like no sooner, it's like we can be so high up, we think, oh, this is just going to ride out for a long time. Oftentimes, when we're this high up, next thing you know, we're down in a valley in no time, aren't we? Have you ever noticed that? I find my own personal life to be much like a roller coaster like that, where you can see where God's working in this person and that person and this person. Next thing you know, I feel like I'm in this really dark low. Does anybody have that experience? Our sorrow will be turned to joy in a very short period of time. Verse 22, you also, uh, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Let's not skip over these verses too quickly. Notice Jesus says, I will see you again. That's a different thing than what he says in verse 16. If you look again back to verse 16, he says, a little while you will see me no longer. And again, a little while you will see me. Okay. In verse 16, it's about the disciples seeing Jesus. But in verse uh, 22, it's about Jesus seeing them. Let me give you two illustrations that will take you into this. Years and years ago, I went to see an old blues artist. I got to see this artist perform, and he was a guy, I found out about him because a lot of the blues artists that I was studying and learning how to, learning how to imitate kept talking about this old blues artist. And I got the opportunity to go see him in Pittsburgh in the early 90s in a, in a smaller venue. I don't know, maybe, maybe a thousand people there, something like that. And I had a great seat. I wasn't much further from me to Maryland away from him which I never, Tammy will tell you, usually we're way out in peanut heaven. We won't pay those. Back then, I don't know, it maybe cost $15 to go see this guy. Um, and I'm watching him, and I'm watching him intensely because I'd learned how to play a lot of his songs. And back in those days, you didn't have YouTube. You didn't have tutorial videos. If you wanted to learn something, you had to keep laying it over and over again. And you'd get some things right. You'd get some things wrong. And I was delighted. Some of the stuff I was doing right. I'm like, oh, well, okay, that's the way I do it. But a lot of the stuff I was doing wrong. And I'm like, that's how you do that. But I think he noticed that I was, that I was really tuned in on him. And at one point, our eyes met. And he was looking right at me. And I, I knew our eyes met. And I didn't know what to do. So I just went like this. And, and he looked back at me and went like this. And that's what made that concert so special. A thousand people went to go see him. But 
How many of the thousand people did he notice? See, I left there knowing he saw me. Now, let's, let's put a stepping stone out. If we lived in an ancient kingdom and we lived in some remote village somewhere, we would all know the king's name, but we'd probably never see him. His travel is so dangerous and travel so hard. But there might be a time, maybe once in a lifetime, where he would maybe come through our village. And if he did, you can imagine everybody gather along the road as he goes by, and maybe he would pay attention to you, maybe he wouldn't. So you would all perhaps see the king, but the king wouldn't see you. And that's what makes this so special right here. Jesus says, not only will they see him, but he says here, I will see you. The sovereign king of the universe, the most important political figure in the cosmos, by the way, the one who's never up for re-election, is promising all his children that he will see each one of us. It's, it'd be breathtaking to see him, wouldn't it? You're in a big crowd, and you're all able to look at him. But he will see each one of us. And my guess is when he does that, it's going to feel like there's no one else in the kingdom, no one else in the cosmos but us and him. How incredible. But even in the meantime, what are you going to want in glory when we can see him and he can see us in glory? All we're going to want is everyone to have the same experience, isn't it? You know, it kind of gives you a little bit of a taste of heaven. And that's what Jesus is doing. Because what Jesus is doing with this passage is he's proclaiming that a new age is about to dawn. A new age is about to open up. A new epic in history is about to open up wide. That's what Jesus is praying or preparing his disciples for. If you look at verse, or if you look at the end of verse 22, he says, your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Verse 23, in that day, you'll ask nothing of me. What's that mean? You'll ask nothing of me. Well, they've been asking questions. The disciples in this, on this night have been asking a number of questions. For example, when Jesus was washing the feet back in chapter 13, Peter said to him, Lord, you're going to wash my feet? He didn't understand that. But after the crucifixion and resurrection, he understood that, didn't he? Jesus came to serve. Or when Peter says, where are you going, Lord? I want to go. Where are you going? He didn't know where Jesus was going, but after the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, Peter then did know where he was going. And when the other disciples say, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? After the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, they would no longer ask that question, would they? And, you know, even the question that's asked by um, Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but the other Judas, in chapter 14, verse 22, he says, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Perplexing question. Well, they don't need to ask that question anymore after the Holy Spirit descends upon the believers in Acts chapter 2, do they? No need to ask that question. Why don't they need to ask any of these questions anymore? Because they know the answers. In this new age that is coming, the Holy Spirit will be more prominent in this new age. And the promises from the prophets of old said, in this new age, the Lord would write his law on our hearts. 
And he said, all will know me. And that's the age that Jesus is bringing in right now before our eyes in this text. There's some commentary on this, you know, in, in, in John's first letter, in 1 John, if you go towards the back of the Bible, 1 John chapter 2. 1 John is really helpful when you're reading John's gospel, by the way, because oftentimes John's first letter gives you commentary on John's gospel. And in verse 18, 1 John 2, verse 18 We read, children, it's the last hour, and as you've heard, uh, that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, you know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they're not all of us. But look at verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. See, that's one of the things about this particular era is when we become a believer, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in our hearts. And let's not exaggerate John's words here. It doesn't mean that we suddenly know everything. That's not what John is saying. What John is saying is you're going to know a lot of things. You're going to know a lot of things. They're just going to be fundamental to you once your heart is opened up, once you have received the Holy Spirit. In fact, um, in, in verse 21, he says, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lies of the truth. We find this whenever we hear something that's a little bit off. We not, might not be able to say why it's a little bit off, but we know it's a little bit off, don't we? That's why it's so important to study those catechisms. Those of you who have been through the catechism, you know. I mean, the catechisms help us learn what that is, to put our finger on what exactly that is that's off. I like to tease Emily about that because I promised her that was the case. And the first time we went through, she she kept sending me texts and things and saying, oh, I can see it now, I can see it now. It was so, so wonderful. But look down to verse 27. There Jesus says, the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him. Now, what's John saying there? Is he saying that we no longer need a teacher? No. You know, John Stott very years, very many, lots of years ago, commenting on this verse said this. No, John is not teaching us we don't need teachers because John is teaching us as we read this. But what he is saying is, in this new age, we have the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, and he does teach us. The difference between, when we're in unbelief, we can't understand the Bible. A lot of people say, I can't understand the Bible. A lot of times, they can't understand the Bible because they don't have Christ in their hearts. You can't understand the Bible without Christ in your hearts, because it's only in his light do we see light. But as Christ, as you embrace Christ with saving faith and you have Christ in your heart, well, suddenly it's not like we understand everything, but you do begin to understand the word and you do begin to experience God speaking to you through his word. And this is what John is pointing to. And if you go back to John 16 again, this is what Jesus is talking about. In that day, you're not going to ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, verse 24, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. What is Jesus doing here? He's pointing to the new era. The new, a new day is dawning. Up until now, for the last three years, these disciples, if they had a question, they could just go to Jesus and they could just ask it. But Jesus is departing. When Jesus is arrested in a matter of an hour or two from now, 
Their relationship with Jesus in, in, in regards to them being able to walk with him physically, being able to see him, being able to touch him, being able to just ask him personally anything, that is about to change. Jesus is going to depart. He's going to go to the right hand of the Father, but the Holy Spirit will come. And as the Holy Spirit comes, they will pray the way the Lord had taught them to pray, praying our Father. And that's why in the Christian church we pray. We, we pray to the Father primarily, don't we? Because Jesus has opened up the way that we can have access to the Father. And uh, Jesus is saying, listen, you've not asked anything in my name, uh, but you are going to be. Uh, it, 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 how often do you hear me say in Jesus' name? Why do I say in Jesus' name? You don't need to say that at the end of all your prayers, but I think it's good to say it once in a while because it's a reminder that the audience that we have with God has its foundation in Christ Jesus. It has its foundation in what Jesus has come and what he has done. It has its foundation in Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He has opened up this way for us. So we can say in Jesus' name. It's in Jesus' name that I can come to you. It's in Jesus' name that I can stand before you. It's only in Jesus that I can, that I can be justified and stand in your presence. But there relationship is changing in the respect that they're going to be asking the Father. In verse 25, Jesus says, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I'll no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you'll ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I'll ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father loves you. You see that? The Father loves you. He loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. The Father loves you. Verse 29, his disciples said, Oh, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you have come from God. The disciples believe now they've arrived. You know, I, I'm thinking of Paul's verse elsewhere where he says, that if any of you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. Because within an hour, they're going to scatter. And sometimes we do, you know. Sometimes in those moments, we think we've arrived, don't we? Again, what's Jesus say? He says in response to this, do you now believe? He's already warned Peter that he's going to deny him three times before the night's over. But then look what he says in verse 32 to the rest. The hour is coming, indeed it has come, that you will be scattered, each to his own home. Jesus is telling him you'll be scattered. Again, we see the amazing love of God here, don't we? Jesus knows full well that those whom he loves, who he has come to die on the cross to save, are going to abandon him. He knows that about them. And he still goes to the cross. See the grace in that? There's a verse here. Um, I want to point something else to you before we wrap this up. Notice how Jesus says, yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. Sometimes people will look at this verse and say, you know, there's a contradiction. How can Jesus say he's not alone, for the Father is with me, when on the cross he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Has anybody been challenged with that one before? Is, has anybody said, they have, you've heard that. What do you say to that? Is there a contradiction here? No. The focus is different in context, 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 right? 
Context, context. What is Jesus talking about? The focus in verse 32 is abandonment. Jesus is saying, all of you guys are going to abandon me, but the Father's not going to abandon me. That's what Jesus is saying. The Father is not going to abandon me. While all of you are going to abandon me, the Father will not abandon me. But when Jesus is hanging on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is carrying out the very thing that he has come to carry out. When sin is credited to his account on the cross, the consequence of sin is meted out on Jesus. This is why in the Apostles' Creed we say he descended into hell. What we mean by that is when Jesus suffered on the cross, he did indeed suffer the absence of the presence of God that he enjoyed. For that moment, while he was being crucified, he, he was enduring the very wrath of God upon him for the sins of us all. Now, I've said many, many times, that was the most intense pain that Jesus endured on the cross. It was not a nail through the wrist or the feet. So there's no contradiction here, uh, none whatsoever. Verse 33 is really uh, 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 just a close verse for me. Is a verse that I used to share with my grandfather a lot. It was a verse I shared at his funeral. I have said these things to you that in, you, in me you may have peace. And I used to share this with him all the time. In the world you'll have tribulation, although I wouldn't use the word tribulation. I'd say troubles, you know, troubles. In the world you'll have troubles, but take heart. I have overcome the world. It could be translated hard circumstances. In the world, you'll have hard circumstances. In this world, things are going to be difficult. But take heart. I have overcome the world. What does that mean? If you're in Christ Jesus, that means these difficulties are temporary. These difficulties will soon pass. Not to diminish their significance right now, but just like the woman given childbirth, when we're in glory with the Lord, we're not going to be thinking about the suffering that we do now. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this dawning of a new age. And oh, Father, we thank you, O oh Lord, for just as we see your heart being displayed as you comfort those who would abandon you, as you comfort the likes of us who are a mixture of belief and unbelief all at once and we're on this roller coaster where we're faithful and we're unfaithful. And there we see your heart and we see your attitude towards us that you, you don't forsake us. You wrap your arms around us and you love us. And it's your love that continues to help us and, and cause us to, 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 to forsake sin and to walk closer with you. We thank you, O oh Lord, for the love that you've displayed here. And we thank you, O oh Father, for your nurture and your grace, O oh Lord. And we thank you for this new age that we're privileged to live in, an age where the Holy Spirit, by way of the Holy Spirit, Lord, you take dwelling in our hearts the moment we put our faith and trust in you. Uh, we, we know uh, a lot of things. We don't know all things, but we know the basics. And, Father, we thank you for that, and we praise you for that. Father, we pray, spread this word. Cause this word to spread to others and in this area, O oh, Father. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.